Hey everyone, I'm Swati Rawat and welcome to the Visionary Podcast where I talk to visionary Indian women with inspiring, intriguing and aspirational stories. In episode 24, our visionary is Dr. Minya Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the CEO of Sustain Labs Paris. an enterprise that turns around organizations towards becoming more sustainable. Dr. Chatterjee is currently working towards providing fast and cost-effective solutions to fight challenges that followed the COVID pandemic. Tune in as Dr. Chatterjee shares her personal journey and talks about her innovative work to help the healthcare system during this pandemic. Uh, my father he was um, he was a pilot in the indian air force so uh, you know me with my family we moved uh, all over india so i changed eight schools by the time i finished uh, high school hmm. and so this was all over from assam to you know tamil nadu to uh, you know the hills even in dehradun in agra a uh, few years in delhi so and 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 i think these are, that was a wonderful childhood i had because uh, you know we every place we stayed a few years and i made friends and again we would get recruited uh, learned so much saw so much and uh, my parents um, you know they they uh, brought me up with uh, a lot of books um and also you know my father he always got me into all kinds of physical activities you know from taking me jogging in the morning to this to call it nature study like showing me butterflies and flowers and leaves <laughs> you know around in every place we would go so they really exposed me to a lot of knowledge you know both through books as well as through the world yeah. um and uh, i was um, you know i was always um, on the I would say on the quieter side, like I was, I, I, I am still, I'm a social introvert, I think. So, you know, so I draw a lot of energy from my own self um, and I've always been that way. I think one thing which was, uh, uh, which very early on at the age of five or six, you know, was that I used to think with my own head. So things like uh, it never made, made sense to me why people go to the temple you know and especially when they want something or more they go more to the temple and things like that so i i i just stopped going you know i, I the any kind of religious uh, practice it just never made any sense to me and uh, i would be thankful and i would do those prayers very quietly privately but i would never be part of any rites and my parents gave me that freedom to make those choices you know that's very important and my parents always brought me up you know to follow my what i wanted to do which i'm very thankful for um and when i was uh, 21 i moved to paris um this was uh, initially on an exchange program while i was doing my degree in uh, india i was at jnu in my early you know my uh, undergrad and the last year I, i went to paris and then after that exchange from there i just continued on to a masters program and then uh, a phd uh in paris uh, so it was a very long uh stretch of years six years at a stretch in paris uh i started working as well uh, my first job was uh, was quite uh, interesting it was in the um it was uh, in the office of the president at that time jacques chirac 
Oh, wow. So I was a policy analyst to his uh, chief counselor uh, at the president's office. So, um, and I did that to, along with my master's and then the early years of my PhD uh, that I was working as well. And then um, also I was receiving a, a scholarship from the French government yeah. all through. But I was, yeah, I mean, I think since the age of 16, since the time I got out of school, I was uh, earning for my own self. You know, my dad would get, give me pocket money, but I wouldn't take it and I would want to earn myself. So do odd jobs and stuff and earn my own money and pay my fees and pay my gym subscription and buy what I wanted to. And uh, even so, my entire studies I funded, uh, you know, by myself um, through the scholarship and what I was doing. And uh, then, uh, you know, my PhD director, who's even now Christoph Jaffrelo, who continues to be, you know, uh, like uh, my PhD director, even if I finished it. <laughs> so he's a continuous mentor to, to my life. So he, you know, told me that, look, you're so excited about what you're doing and you're not finishing your PhD at all. So uh, because my work was so exciting. Uh, so, I was, you know, I was not sleeping and only, you know, doing uh, all that. So then uh, he sent me off to some, uh, you know, scholarships uh, in the U.S. I was in uh, Harvard for a semester and uh, for three months, actually. And then I was in Columbia for uh, Columbia University in New York for a year and a half on uh, for uh, uh, as a research fellow, um, Ph.D. research fellow. And that really helped me to uh, make progress on the Ph.D. as well as what happened there was that I met with, um, you know, the whole banking community. And I didn't really go looking for a job, but I went for free drinks to this recruitment event, which was organized by Goldman Sachs. And I got, and uh, so I joined Goldman in their London office. So I came back uh, to Europe with them and uh, I worked there for a bit and then came back to Paris where I was managing a hedge fund, a fund of hedge fund, which was a hedge fund, which was investing in 30 hedge funds. And uh, because I was back in Paris, I could complete the PhD as well. So it took me about five years to four and a half, five years to complete the PhD. And uh, then, you know, the year I finished my PhD, it was also kind of a, you know, self, uh, uh, like I was questioning whether I really want to, because I was 29 at the time and I could have either stayed on in the banking profession, which was going pretty well. Yeah. Uh, hedge funds is a more interesting and exciting part of banking. Or, you know, uh, just do things which I truly, truly love. And I chose the latter. And I moved to Egypt where uh, my partner at that time, I thought he was living there. Hmm. So I moved there, you know, uh, and then uh, I started writing again because since the time I got into banking, I just stopped writing. And otherwise, even, you know, since the age of 17, I used to write uh, opinion pieces and travel pieces for the Times of India and Economic Times. So I started writing again and uh, also started my not-for-profit uh, called Stargazers, um, which worked on education, yeah, health of kids. And then that same year, one of my mentors, you know, he advised me to go, uh, you know, to go check out the World Economic Forum in Geneva because uh, I was coming from a very kind of a narrow background of finance and uh, he felt like at the World Economic Forum, um, I would be able to meet with a lot of people, you know, whose lives then I could learn from. How, hmm. 
they do things, it'll be very good exposure for me to broaden out um, uh, my thinking. Uh, and he was really right. So um, I joined the World Economic Forum. I mean, I actually, that's the only organization that I, um, you know, that I applied to because I was running my NGO. And uh, the next three and a half years I was there in economic, um, I was also running my NGO. <laughs> See, because, uh, you know, my team and by that time, my interest had really grown in India. You know, it had been a long time. It had been, what, 14 years I hadn't uh, lived in uh, India, it was, you know, out. And then so my interest had grown at the World Economic Forum. I was managing South Asia, Middle East, North Africa for the, for the forum. Yeah. So uh, my NGO started doing work in India. And uh, I would from from Geneva, you know, once in two months or once a month, a weekend, I would fly down to India. And we were doing work in like Nizamabad. So I'd fly to Hyderabad and from there, have a three three hour car ride to Islamabad and again go back to Geneva, you know, wow. for Monday. <laughs> so it was really crazy. And then at the end of three and a half years or so, I was quite sure that, you know, at the end of two years at the forum, I was sure that I want to come back to India and whatever, whatever little I've learned in life to be able to do. So it took me a year to figure out where exactly I want to, you know, what exactly I want to do in, in India, what's the best uh, platform. Um, I was considering policy and politics because, you know, I wanted to make an impact. How do you broaden your impact? Because the World Economic Forum was great for impact, but it was at a very high level, um, you know, was making others do things. But I myself was not doing anything, right? I was making like other people do uh, stuff, which is good for the world. So, um, but then, you know, policy, pol it's, it's I, I don't think I can, you know, I felt like I, that's too murky for me in India, you know, I won't be able to cope <laughs> with that kind of, um, you know, lack of meritocracy and non-transparency yeah. and all that that goes on. So corporate, uh, the private sector seemed good. And at that time, the role of chief sustainability officer was very rare. It still is, but at that time, even more so. And uh, so Naveen Jindal, we had a few common friends and in a conversation with him, I suggested to him that, listen, why don't you, you know, are you thinking on these lines of um, work of, you know, uh, moving uh, GSPL towards, um, you know, sustainability? And then he said, yeah, that's something that's very important to him. I was like, great. And then, you know, so that was it. So, you know, I, I moved to India to GSPL. And uh, for about three years, I was their chief sustainability officer, which was really in very, very good. And which made them think that either I move on, you know, in terms of being a CEO of a company or continue on this journey of uh, leveraging the private sector hmm. uh, towards doing good. You know, I'm a strong believer that, you know, social entrepreneurs don't need to be small. Every company needs to be a social entrepreneur, actually. You know, you, that has to be embedded within your business model. Uh, responsibility so that's how sustain lab started okay. um i basically at sustain lab when i started it the whole idea was to multiply the impact i was being able to make at one large business conglomerate multiplied by four at least yeah, you know? hmm. so, and that's what i do so i work across um, organizations mostly in developing countries so uh, you know we and mostly with large organizations um and uh, we do work with startups as well, but the work with startups is uh, pro bono. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, not for profit completely. Yeah. 
startups are thinking, you know, they, they, it's an uphill task for them to be able to be financially sustainable as well as responsible across things. So, um, so yeah, and uh, so we work in Morocco, we worked in uh, Fiji, in uh, India, and uh, we have a big, uh, you know, I teach at Sciospo, uh, my university where I, you know, studied on my master's and PhD in Paris. Yeah. And so I left a lot of the research and the academic networks that I have in Europe for the work that I do across all these different countries. And I think so one thing I forgot to mention is that, uh, you know, I cut across a few countries. So I lived in, uh, I mentioned Paris, but after in Berlin, in Brussels, then I moved to the US for those fellowships. And then when I came back to London, then uh, Paris, Cairo, then I went to, then I was living in Beijing for six four or five months and then uh, Geneva <laughs> so, <I'm just> <laughs> <country>. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Chatterjee I want you to understand um, for my audience who doesn't probably know about Sustain Labs what does it do to its core and what are some of the initiators that it's involved in yeah so the, the uh, mission is very simple we take a traditional organization and typically large traditional organizations and we transform them into becoming sustainable organizations. And so, so the meaning of sustainability would be very specific to that organization. Yeah, because, you know, it's a misconception. Sustainability is only about CS and the environment. It is much, much more, right? You have to be ethical. There is a financial sustainability as well. You know, so there is a lot of uh, things. So that's what we do. Um, and uh, we are, and the model is quite interesting because, you know, in this kind of change management, because we we, we don't give a, a, a proposal to these organizations, actually a part of these organizations and change them from within. Yeah, this kind of change management, you can't be an outsider and do it. You, because the the people at that organization will never agree to anything you say because an outsider. Yeah. Right. So I part of these organizations. So I think, you know, we're uh, we should question our bias that a person should be an employee at only one company. I don't know how we came up with this idea. So <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of the chief sustainability officer for several <laughs> companies. Yeah. And these are all full jobs as in you know people at that organization most of them have no idea that actually you know there is a full organization involved and you know I'm not an employee and uh, I have a team and that team at every organization you know I have a team who, who uh, plans and implements all all the changes uh, and that team is a mix of people that come from sustained labs okay uh, my own uh, you know employees who I place like full-time they're working uh, with the organization as well as uh, people which I ask the organization to hire for me so it's a mix so this way I'm developing capacity within these organizations um, you know because then they're working with my team working with me closely and then so that after when these are usually very long projects you know very long projects and so that after whenever a number of years when we do exit that capacity is built in within that organization engineering yeah Okay, so that's what. And for startups, I do I do a bunch of things for startups, uh, from sustainability assessments. I mean, that's something um, you know, it's very useful for startups. You know, who, who are seeking fund, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, they might have a model which is uh, either 
helping the society or it is, uh, you know, a carbon neutral. Uh, it has a circular economy, circular model within it. But um, they wouldn't have the resources to prove that, right, to, to actually get an analysis done because these uh, sustainability reportings is incredibly inflated, the prices in India. I mean, it's anything between 30 lakhs to 20 lakhs to just to get a sustainability assessment, you know, report done, we are right, uh, according to the GRI framework. Um, so we do it at a not-for-profit basis, you know, just to help startups um, have a quantitative analysis of, uh, you know, of their sustainability done. And so that they can present that to investors, to people, you know, to banks, if they want loans, or even to any of the stakeholders. So yeah, so this is what we do. Um, it sounds pretty interesting, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> Doctor Chatterjee, what role is Sustain Labs playing now to help fight the multiple crises that have emerged with the arrival of COVID nineteen in India? So, uh, I, um, you know, I just come back from, uh, um, you know, and there was uh, at that time in India in the month of March, there were about uh, three hundred cases in India. Yeah, and. Uh, when I landed, uh, you know, at the airport, there was like there, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of communication around COVID, you know, in uh, in the airport in in Delhi, and whereas in Paris it was peaking, there were thousands of and there was you know no lockdown, nothing, there was nothing happening, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so when I came down to India, I mean that's the one thing that really struck me is that. Social distancing, which uh, at that time when there were 300 cases, which is what was being, you know, um, uh, people were being asked to do, it's going to be very difficult. You know, I was clear it was going to be very difficult to do to, to practice social distancing in India vis-a-vis yeah. -vis a country like uh, France. I live in, um, they live in Paris three months every year. So, you know, I know that there it's just easier, you know, just for the basic reason, there's more, you know, the per capita shelter is more spacious yeah and in India, you have one in six urban dwellers who lives in a slum zone so how is one going to you know socially isolate and then you have you know shared toilets so in Dharavi for example the number is one into one one uh, toilet per 1800 people so where the question of socially isolating right so in fact I wrote an op-ed also in the HD about that me and my team we kind of did a simulation of how you know of just sort of of um you know, how fast the COVID uh, virus can spread. Yeah. So uh, now what I was clear was that what we need to do at that time itself was that we need to have these quarantining facilities and temporary hospitals because the social distancing is not going to work and you will eventually have a huge spread of the virus in India. So we need to have more facilities where people living in slum zones can be brought to because they, you know, so, and also temporary hospitals, public health in India anyways is very weak. And if social distancing doesn't work, then obviously, you know, we'll have to, the burden will fall on hospitals, which will not be able to take this. Yeah. So one of my clients, uh, one of the clients of, you know, uh, Steen Labs is Anant National University. It is a design, uh, uh, it used to be a state university, Gujarat State University for design, architecture and urban planning. And Sustain Labs was brought in to make the transformation of it, uh, for of, of transforming Anand to becoming a sustainable design and architecture university. And, okay. you know, you just, so uh, 
that was ideal because uh, then um, you know the university had the planners and architects and uh, we put together a plan and submitted it to the um, uh, to the prime minister's office of converting all these vacant spaces vacant buildings vacant halls community halls marriage halls you know a lot of residential buildings which are complete but which have not been handed over who's going to buy now and all that so convert all of these into becoming either quarantine centers or temporary hospitals and we gave complete plans plans of how they can be done even a financial ppp structuring we gave them two three options so that the government doesn't need to pay money and yet the private sector is incentivized okay all that we gave and uh, after I, we submitted it to the pmo i mean i thought that you know i'm never going to hear here back it's gone into one black hole now yeah <laughs> so yeah. i am um, Simultaneously, I started reaching out to friends, you know, who I thought that could help. So, uh, so there was Anil Anthony in Kerala. Um, you know, he's the son of A.K. Anthony, so they're a, polit- a very well-established uh, political family in Kerala. And uh, you know, and then also reached out to Milan the Diora, uh, who was ex-minister and you know MP from Bombay. Hmm. And both of them were very forthcoming. and the first two centers one temporary hospital in thiruvananthapuram and one quarantine center in um, you know in mumbai these two uh, i got them funded and uh, set them up so there was a, you know the one in bombay was 100 beds and the one in thiruvananthapuram was 20 beds and for us this was like you know a model uh, to set these up that and to, for us to see how it works but that and when we set up thiruvananthapuram you know uh, we knew that okay you know, this is going to scale up and we can't be buying steel beds and stuff you know we have to come up with options which are cheaper uh, we put together a little design committee and people you know of experts of materials and stuff and we we realized that uh, cardboard just laminated corrugated cardboard is the best um and instead of going to other manufacturers we the my team at um, at anant uh we actually manu- designed and manufactured the entire thing from scratch so we not we didn't even buy cardboard we made it oh there, wow right and these are cardboard beds so these are just separators that are between two beds these are cardboard beds oh wow these are cardboard beds and they take the weight of seven people so seven people can uh, you know sit on them and can move around and whatever they want it doesn't break and in fact we sent uh, five so we were you know when we were still building kerala we were thinking about this and we sent the first five cardboard beds to kerala and these are laminated so you know so they are water resistant so we sent wow. them and, and they got drenched got drenched in the rain and nothing happened to them they were in the truck yeah so that was a great that's test. pretty cool yeah <laughs> so but the thing is we didn't compromise on quality and that's on our own you know it's not that we made the design and got somebody to manufacture that's why the quality is great and then in bombay it really caught on so we were doing like two centers a week so we did 700 beds in bombay so we did uh, najambagh uh, like it was a four floor building uh um you know marriage hall exactly we had written to the prime minister and the prime minister's office they also wrote back to me by the way they contacted me 5 6 days later um and uh, took my help to set up uh, the um, you know the different categories on gem that's their uh, e marketplace for government yeah. projects and also got us got you know registered as well on gem as a, a vendor 
to do government projects for uh, these temporary COVID hospitals. And I help them to set up the categories of quarantine facilities and temporary hospitals and stuff on their e-marketplace. But nothing came of that because, you know, it's very complicated. And here, what worked is that you, we were just working with BMC, with the local governments, yeah. you know, the state governments. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so then we do, we did uh, Gujarat. Uh, now we are doing this week uh, Delhi. So we're setting up, uh, completing 100 beds this week. And then we are doing a 1,000 bed facility as well in uh, Delhi. Wow. So, yeah, and besides that... While we were uh, setting up these hospitals and quarantine centers in Bombay, um, you know, the lockdown was lifted, right? Because all this we were doing with shipping, we were like making manufacturing and running these trucks all across the country during like a nationwide lockdown. Nothing was allowed to be manufactured and stuff. So we had to get like special permission from the uh, collector in Bombay to the collector in, you know, in Rajkot where we were manufacturing saying that please let it be open. <laughs> it was a crazy time really. Um, but at that time what happened was then the, the lockdown was was lifted and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, my, I started to think about um, now how many people can we quarantine, you know, because now it's just going to spread. Now yeah. Everybody can meet everybody. How many people will we test and how many people can we quarantine? So oxygen uh, would be the most important thing because, you know, beds in the hospitals are not going to be available. So we started thinking about having a very affordable, very, very affordable uh, ambulance, oxygen ambulance, and also very affordable mobile testing um, vehicle as well. Um, you know, just like our beds are quarantine centers and hospitals are very cost effective. Like it's 6,000 per um, whole, you know, per person, per patient that we spend, which is really nothing compared to the, uh, normally it is 50,000. Um, so uh, what we discover is that if we lower, if we lower the cost of the vehicle in an ambulance, then that is the biggest cost, actually. The cost of the vehicle is always the biggest cost okay. in any ambulance or in any test mobile testing. And so we decided to go for an auto. Auto is the cheapest. Yeah. So we, you know, an MTV, you've seen that my ride, that show, have you yeah. seen it? It used yeah. to come in. Yeah. <laughs> it was literally that. So the university, my team, Dhaval Monani and all of them, they we actually took these autos, these cargo autos and completely broke it down. And randomly I checked with that, that, you know, listen, this is something I'm planning. And then a few days later, he said that, how is your, you know, message, how is your autos going with that little, uh, what do you call it, smile, you know, that auto icon. <laughs> so, so he said, you know, he wants them. He thought it was a great idea. So now um, last week we sent our first auto, two more autos on the way, two oxygen autos and one uh, testing auto, x-ray testing and COVID and uh, swab testing auto. What? <laughs> All that. Yeah. So BMC is operating. So this week, uh, so the last week we, uh, you know, send them one. And now this week we're sending two more and they're going to start operating them end of uh, this week on the roads of Bombay and they want more of the oxygen ones and then I've got calls from Hyderabad MP and all that they all want because you know these autos are very cheap everything done is four and a half lakhs like all the equipment and the auto and because I'm doing all this completely free of profit like not no profit involved here at all so it's super 
and uh, the quality is very good because it's a university doing it it's all very research based and stuff and these autos can just go everywhere no it can go into lanes and anywhere so they're very very useful wow and dr chatterjee this all brings down to my last question which is more like your opinion and your viewpoint in terms of everything that's happening now and the changes that we will see in a post pandemic world um do you see global businesses becoming more aware uh, about the issues of sustainability and incorporating these doctrines of sustainable growth see i think um, sustainability is essentially resilience you know so the meaning of sus- sustainability has changed over the years you know in even it was conceived like 200 years ago by a a, a, a demographer was to work on population at that time sustainability had to do with food hmm. so thomas malthus he came up with the word and then that time it was all about food and then it came to moved to economy to economists for about 40 50 years it was all you know about numbers and economics and then it moved to resources and then it moved to environment and now it is social and environments you know the current meaning of sustainability uh, that i don't think there is you know any direct link to how the post covid world would look like you know because mm. uh, uh, people will be thinking about uh, financial recovery you know first but what will uh, definitely be important going forward would be your inherent strength within an organization and that inherent strength comes by making sure all your stakeholders are fine that your production processes your products those are truly sustainable you know that they are looking that those products and processes are not just for immediate needs um you know not short sighted but it is they are these are products and processes which um, you know make sense for the long term and uh, you know are catering to uh, to needs with a not just urgent but also important yeah so that to me across different eras of however sustainability has been defined that to me is you know the some, a, a common factor across all these different definitions of how you are involving your stakeholders whether it you know so that builds in an inherent resilience within a, com- a an organization um you know so if an organization is well diversified you know if that organization is providing is making products and services which are needed even across all times whether the employee base is is you know the well being the employee base is good hmm. so those are the companies which will survive and thrive after covid and that is going to be a big realization of how important it is to have organizations which are truly resilient hmm. uh which is the real is the you know is the meaning of sustainability across eras resilience uh for sure that's going to be something which will be very very you know prominent in a post covid world if you'd like to know more about sustain labs please visit sustainlabsparis.com you'll find the link in the episode description Thanks for listening in and please subscribe to the show to catch the next episode. You can follow us on Instagram to stay in touch and get all the updates. Our Instagram handle is vision.nari. That's V I S I O N . N A R I. 
If you know a visionary that I should feature on this podcast, write to me at the visionary podcast at the rate gmail dot com. That's T H E V I S I O N N A R I podcast at the rate gmail dot com. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform. Theme music is created by Diala Swain. She's a uniquely talented music producer from New Zealand. Do check out her music on SoundCloud or follow the link in the description. I'll see you guys soon with a new visionary. Have a great day.